You gain strength, courage and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You are able to say to yourself, I have lived through this horror. I can take the next thing that comes along. You must do the thing you think you cannot do. Welcome to episode two of our three-part Controlling Mind series. Hi, I'm Timothy Maurice, your behavioral psychology author, and I'm working really hard to simplify neuroscience and behavioral psychology so you can firstly understand your brain better. But secondly, one of the biggest hopes is that you leave these episodes with a competitive advantage over those who don't listen. I want you to understand human behavior at a level that helps you build better relationships with your stakeholders, market better to them, and ultimately build lasting bonds personally and professionally in order to experience more success. In episode one, if you haven't listened, please go back and listen to episode one of this series. We explored the simple idea that there are moments when you should use tools to control other people's minds. One of those moments is when someone is being destructive to you, your career, or people around you because of a negative unconscious bias. You see, the ability to trigger and inspire a shift in thinking is a control mechanism that is critical in this diverse world. For example, if you're a woman in a male-dominated industry like mining and constantly experience negative bias, then mastering mind control can help you reduce aggression so you can get on with your life and build your career. But in this second episode, I thought I would quickly flip the conversation and ask you, how can you control your own mind better? So today, I'd like to bring you a conversation with best-selling author John Hagel. But before I do, here's a quick tip to control and get more out of your own brain, and I call it second brain design. Second brain design is one of my favorite strategies to help me control my own mind. For example, I design a space in my home where I ensure I keep my keys. Now, what that does for me is help me preserve energy, preserve cognitive load. It may seem super simple, but if I wake up every day and I know my keys are in that same place, in that same corner, then I create a pattern in my mind to reduce the need to spend unnecessary energy. And this is energy that I can spend on other things. But it goes even further. I put my white shirts in the same place in the closet because I know I'm wear mostly white shirts. But it goes even deeper. I put the unhealthy snacks in my cupboard, in my closet, in the kitchen, up a little higher or lower because I'm aware that my brain will default to the easiest thing most of the time. Yes, there will be times where I'll jump up or reach down low, but for the most part, what's at eye level is easier for my brain, so I'm gonna default there. So you can design your home in a way where it can even help you lose weight. Put yourself in a situation where you put the things that you're slightly addicted to further down low, up higher or out of the way. I'm not saying don't buy them. But essentially what you're doing is you're reducing the need for motivation. You don't need to be motivated to find your keys or to find your white shirts because you designed them in your home. I'll go even further in a future episode, I'll promise you. Because there's so much neuroscience that applies to second brain design. But just know, 
Your brain creates patterns and formulas that helps you preserve energy when you design your home in a way that keeps you from having to think. But on the side of losing weight or any other thing you're trying to do, by designing your home or the spaces or your offices in a way that you are attracted to the things that's easier, that you're drawn to things that are easier and have the unhealthy things further out of your reach, you have mastered second brain design. Now, as promised, here is a chat I had with John Hagel. Hagel is the author of Journey Beyond Fear. In addition to his new book, John is the author of seven books, including The Power of Pool, Net Gain, Net Worth, Out of the Box, and The Only Sustainable Edge. He is widely published in the Wall Street Journal, as well as New York Times, NBC, and BBC, and many others. Meet John Hagel. And by the way, when I had this conversation about overcoming fear and conquering what's in your mind, I didn't necessarily have this specific topic in mind. But for those who listen to my podcast often, you know I go on these tangents where I link my previous research conversations with topics that I'm really passionate about. And you're going to see the link to this mind control episode. Enjoy. You are listening to one of my favorite podcasts, The Brain and the Brand Show with Timothy Maurice. John Hagel, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I have enormous respect for the journey you've taken to get to this point. But before we jump into the conversation, let's define fear. What is fear? <laughs> well, fear can take many different forms, obviously. It's, uh, you know, some people are afraid of spiders, others are afraid of heights and You know, we all have individual fears that uh, uh, get us anxious, but um, I'm focused on fear that is much more general. And it's about fear of the future that, you know, are you, when you look ahead into the future, are you primarily focusing on a threat, uh, something bad that's going to happen? And that feeds the fear that, that you have today. And so that's the fear that I'm really focused on is I think more and more of us, when we look out into the future, are seeing bad things happening. And so it's creating that fear within us. And sure. while, I, while I think it's understandable, I think it's also um, uh, very limiting in terms of our potential. And so that's the motivation for writing the book. I have to tell you, over the last few years, I had a dog sort of forced on me by a former partner, and I overcame my fear through experience. And one of the mm. reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you is because we want to put the overcoming of fear in action. I, I'm also curious, I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of thinkers and prolific writers. Have you had your own experience with fear that has motivated you to tackle this work? No, absolutely. This new book that I wrote called The Journey Beyond Fear is partly a memoir about my own journey beyond fear. I grew up in a childhood when I was very afraid. I had a very dysfunctional family and 
a lot of emotional abuse. And I, I grew up with great fear of, of the future. And so that shaped a lot of my early life. And uh, it took me a long time to really realize that fear was driving my actions and that there was an opportunity to move beyond fear. So, yeah. Absolutely. So let's talk about that first moment where you did have that realization. What happened? What triggered it? You know, it... It came, I mean, I think there were things along the way that I was kind of edging in away from fear, but it wasn't really until my in my 50s, uh, I was over 50 years old, and I was going through a divorce, and um, it was a crisis. I mean, it was really creating, uh, you know, a lot of emotional stress for me, and but it was a catalyst for me to really reflect on what is it that was driving me, that had driven me in my relationships, in my work, in my life. And uh, that was when I started to really come to the realization that fear had been the driving force and that I could change that, that there was a, an opportunity to evolve it and um, cultivate other emotions that would help me to achieve more. I mean, you spent your career with the likes of the McKenzie's, Deloitte. I think you retired from Deloitte. I'm sure that you had to deal with a lot of high, high potential, high earners who also were grappling with fear. Perhaps you can share a little bit of what did you see that some of the most successful people in the world when you were consulting, what, what, is, what did some of the most successful people do? to conquer their fears? Well, you know, I think part of the challenge uh, is that many of them weren't even able to acknowledge their own fear. Uh, mm. And, you know, because we live in cultures, I'm going to generalize, but around the world, there are cultures that basically say, you know, fear is a sign of weakness. So if you express fear, you're a weakling. So, and particularly if you're a leader, I mean, God forbid that a leader should be expressing fear. You want that person to have great strength and, you know, yes. have yeah. answers to all the questions. And so I, the first challenge for me was to build enough trust where I could really challenge the leaders and get them to search and see that they were actually being driven by fear more and more. I mean, I think you know, there are exceptions, but I would say as a generalization, my experience, and it was one of the reasons, again, that I was prompted to write this book, was more and more of the leaders that I was encountering had fear as their primary driving force. <clears throat> and so it's just getting them to see it for the first time and realize, again, you know, on the one side <clears throat> that it, it was understandable I mean, one of the challenges for leaders today, we're in a world of intensifying competition, more rapid change. The average lifetime of a leader in their job is shrinking at a significant yeah. rate, right? And they all yeah. know that. They know that yeah. they could lose their job next month. And so getting them to see that 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 was what was driving them and then to see how limiting it was and that there are options and other ways of approaching their, their work and their job and the people they worked with uh, was a major breakthrough for them. So, How did you get people to open up? I mean, once, once they felt the trust, 
were there some nudges or prompts that you used to get people to open up to their own fears? Some of it was just telling them uh, stories of encounters I had with other leaders and the fear. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't name them by name because uh, to preserve the confidentiality. <laughs> but Sure, sure. You know, to, to really get them to see that it was a, not an unusual thing for a leader to be afraid, you know, that it was understandable. And so that often helped to draw them out in terms of, okay, yeah, maybe I have a fair amount of fear myself. And sure, sure. Let's deconstruct passion. I mean, you, you argue in your book that there are, there are sort of levels or different types of passion. And with the right type of passion, you can begin conquering your fear. Break down your thoughts around passion. I've been doing a lot of research for decades. And one of the things that um, has been a key theme in my work is I believe that we have long-term forces that are transforming our global economy and society. And I call okay. it the big, big shift. And on, in one side, the, this big shift is creating mounting performance pressure on all of us. Again, it, it, it takes the form of intensifying competition on a global scale, uh, accelerating pace of change, extreme unexpected disruptive events that come in out of nowhere, dare I say pandemic, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that leave us, you know, scrambling to figure out what to do. So there's a lot of fear out there. Um, and, and, but, and with the pressure, my, my focus in the research was where can I find environments where there's sustained extreme performance improvement, where we can see real significant and, and accelerating improvement of performance? And I looked at many diverse environments, uh, not just business environments, but everything from extreme sports, uh, like big wave surfing to online war games. And one of the common elements I saw across all those environments was the participants had a very specific form of passion. And okay. I, I, I use the term somewhat guardedly because I know everyone has a different definition of passion. At least in my experience, if I survey a room, everyone has a, yeah, <laughs> their yeah, own yeah. definition, right? So, but the passion of the explorer, which is what I've come to call this specific form of passion, has three components to it. One is the people who have this passion have made a long-term commitment to be in a particular area and have increasing impact in that area. It's not just being oh, in wow. the area but it's having more and more impact over time. And okay. that's uh, their commitment. Second element of the passion of the explorer is what I call a questing disposition. These people, when questing they're questing disposition, questing okay. disposition, when they're confronted with an unexpected challenge, their reaction is excitement. Oh my goodness. This I've never seen this before. This is an opportunity to get even more impact. You know, this is an opportunity to learn and have more impact. Okay. And then the third element is uh, what I call a connecting disposition, which is the reaction of these people, the people who have this form of passion, when confronted with an unexpected challenge, their first reaction is, who else can I connect with who can help me get to a better answer faster? 
because wow. they're committed to having more and more impact. And they realize that no matter how smart they are as individuals or talented, they're going to come up with better answers faster if they have help from others. So they're oh, wow. very well connected, extremely well connected. I love those three. I mean, specifically the quest disposition. Do you think some of the ability to have this sort of questing disposition, this connecting mindset? A quick note before I continue this conversation with John, make sure you go to whatever podcast platform you're listening, leave a comment and rate. It will mean so much to me and the entire team. Now back to the chat. You know, do you think it is wiring? It's something we can learn. You know, is it nature, nurture? What do you think it is? <laughs> it's a, a, an important topic. And I get into a lot of debates on this because <clears throat> I would say a very common pushback I get from people is, come on, John, some of us are capable of this form of passion, but most of us just want <laughs> Most of us just want to be told what to do and have the security yeah. of a paycheck yeah. you know, and income, and that's all they want. And, you know, my response to that is, well, let's go to a playground and let's look at children six or seven years old. Show me one that isn't really curious and exploring and excited about confronting things they hadn't expected to encounter. We all had that passion as children, I believe it's an innate human trait that we all have. The problem is we went to school and we were taught in school to just sit and listen to the teacher and memorize what the teacher has to say and then take the exam to prove that you've memorized it. And if you have a passion, great, put it out on the playground or you know, at home, after school, but don't bring it into the school. And that was very explicitly, and again, I'm going to generalize, but I think this is true around the world. Most of the schools we have today were designed to prepare us to go to work in factories where you were taught to just, you know, read the manual, do these tasks in the assigned way and don't deviate from the tasks and so that's what work was and is. And so it was training us to, again, and passion is deeply suspect. And again, I'm going to generalize, but yeah, yeah, I, would yeah, say, yeah. <laughs> I would say passion in most work environments is very suspect. Passionate people ask so many questions and they're risk takers. You know, they're wanting to take risk <clears throat> and they deviate from the script. They're, you know, off exploring something that was unexpected. No, we want people who would just sit there and do their tasks yeah. as a sign. Yeah. That many of us have just basically lost any sense that we would have a passion. You know, I think it's hidden within us waiting to be discovered, but, you know, yeah. environments are discouraging us from doing that. Yeah. I mean, you, you can, I can just see it now. Parents, Older people are just like hammering the passion out of them. Why stop asking questions? Just do this, <laughs> you know. So beyond just teachers, right? I mean, oh yeah, you are. You've committed this chapter of your career to helping people go beyond the edge. I mean, you're, this is your business mantra, your business philosophy. But I'm also going to push back a little bit 
aren't we wired to stay away from the edge? Like, <laughs> isn't it, isn't it in our genetic makeup to be careful not to go too far, to be safe? You know, I want to make sure that I plan properly for my family and so forth. So why are you pushing people to go beyond the edge? No, I'm pulling people, not pushing. I don't, ah, I, I, I love it. I love it. My, my previous book was called The Power of Pull. So I'm a big proponent of pulling okay. people and inspiring them and motivating them to want to uh, move beyond the fear. But, you know, yes, I think fear is, is, again, it's a natural human emotion. And I am in no way suggesting that we're going to eliminate fear. There are reasons to be afraid. There are things that, that are potentially very challenging to us. But on the other side, I think, again, it's very limiting. If we just are driven by fear, we're not going to achieve as much of our potential as we can. And I, the example I, I give, you know, I've, as part of my research, I spend a lot of time with big wave surfers. And when you talk to those surfers, you know, when they're paddling out to ride that next big wave, they're afraid. Mm. I mean, they know... They know that people have not only fallen off their boards on those waves, they've actually died trying to surf those waves. So there are reasons to be afraid. It's again, not a, but they're still paddling out to ride that wave because their passion about achieving more and more impact, doing things that haven't been done before really drives them and excites them. And so I think we all within us, want to have make more of a difference to the people and the environment that matters to us. And so I, I just think that, you know, I, I say we, we all have a, a, a sensitivity to, to fear, but, you know, I, I ask, often ask, tell me one person who says their aspiration is to live in fear, that that's what mm. they want to do with life. Yeah, I don't know anyone yeah. whose aspirations to live in fear. We all have a hunger for hope and excitement. We all want to have something that really excites us and will drive us to have more impact that's meaningful to us and to others. I think if all of us in our quietest moments would admit that if somebody hadn't inspired or pulled us from a safe space, we would have never known what we were made of. You know, we would have never been, you know, come alive at our highest level. The most probably one of the most fearful moments I've ever had in my life was deciding to move to South Africa from New York. And I remember just thinking to myself, there's a billion plus people on this continent and I know one. And <laughs> it was scary, uh, John, but I had to tell you that it changed my entire life. So I agree with your philosophy. You know, I, I want to I talk a little bit about stories and narratives and what is the difference between the two well, I, you know, and to be fair, I think for most people, they mean the same thing. It's, you know, they're synonymous. You, you can either talk about stories or narratives. It means the same thing, you know, and I'm a, I'm a bit of an outlier in the sense that I believe there is a significant difference that can be made between stories and narratives that really has the matters. And so for me, the distinction is stories are self-contained. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. The end, okay. the story is over. And the story is about the storyteller, or it's about some other people, real or imagined, but it's not about you. 
You can use your imagination. You could think about what you would have done in that story, but it's not about you. Okay. And the distinction then for me about narrative is narratives the way I define them are open-ended. There is no end yet. There is some kind of threat, very big threat or opportunity out in the future, not clear whether it's going to be achieved or not. And the resolution of the narrative hinges on you. It's a call to action to say your choices, your actions are going to help determine how this narrative resolves. And so it's a powerful sense of agency that you can and need to make a difference here and relative to something out in the future that is yet to be uh, achieved or not. So I think that, um, you know, while I, I certainly acknowledge the power of stories uh, the emotional power of stories, absolutely. Um, I, I make the point that throughout history, millions of people have sacrificed their lives for narratives. You know, yeah. those were so powerful that they really motivated people to make the ultimate sacrifice. And so I think there's a real a need and opportunity for us to embrace narratives at many different levels. I talk about narratives at the level of the individual. We, I believe we all as individuals have a narrative. I believe that companies and organizations have narratives, geographies have narratives, cities, regions, and then movements have narratives. And so I think there's an opportunity for us to really use narrative as a, as a vehicle, as a catalyst, to help us move from fear to hope and excitement. I can see why Scott Barry Kaufman was so moved by your book. And, you know, as a prolific psychologist, you know, I followed his work for a while and I see that the timing of this book, you know, the journey beyond fear, leveraging the three pillars of positivity to build success is so key for those who are going to rush out and get this book and they're going to order it. Let's talk a little bit about what can they start doing right now while they wait for while they wait for the book to arrive. You know, I think again, it, it's just looking inside. I think m- many of us are just so consumed by all the things that are going on around us. But looking inside and really asking the question of what is the emotion that's really driving my fundamental choices and actions, the the big choices and actions that I'm making today, what is it that's driving it? Is it, is it a sense of threat, you know, risk that I'm going to lose something if I don't do this? Or is it a sense of opportunity, something that's really exciting? And, you know, starting to realize, again, in my experience, most people, when they reflect in that way, start to realize that, oh, my God, you know, I'm being driven by threat and I have a lot of fear. And just that first step of acknowledging the fear, I think, can be a a major step forward. Yeah. And I do know that there are people who don't feel supported. You know, I want to speak to this group of specific group of people. You know, if I've got family members and resources in place and a network that can absorb me, you know, there's a bigger chance that I or a better chance that I may launch out. For those people who feel alone, that they that there aren't many people getting their back, can you speak to them real quick about confronting yeah. their fear? No, I think, again, a key theme in my work and lesson that I've learned in my, in my journey is 
you need to, as quickly as possible, find some other people that you can connect with that will help you on that journey. So yes, you, you, your point is right. You have, may have friends and family that are out there, but everyone lives in a community. Most people go to work. There are people around them who are facing similar kinds of challenges in terms of fear. And finding some people who are willing to recognize that and motivate, motivated to try to move beyond it, that reinforces each individual's journey along the way. They have some support. They have some other people who are on the same journey. Yeah. I see that in my running group. I have, you know, we have several different levels in our running group and a couple of the young ladies who just started, you know, they were terrified. The idea of running a five kilometer run was just seems Mm -hmm. like, you know, after a couple runs and the encouragement, you know, it's just incredible how they lit up with excitement. John, I really appreciate you making time for this conversation. I I just want to close by asking you, if you could go back to your 21-year-old self, think about your journey, what would you tell your 21-year-old self that could potentially alter the trajectory of where you are now? You know, I, I, I talked about the big shift and the mounting performance pressure that we're all facing. I think the paradox of the big shift is at the same time, those same forces are creating exponentially expanding opportunity. We can create much more value with far less resource, far more quickly than would have been imaginable a few decades ago. And so if I could talk to my 21-year-old self, it would be see those exponentially expanding opportunities. Yeah. Don't, don't be consumed by the fear. See the opportunities and find ways to address them. John Hagel, thank you for joining us on the Brandy Brand Show. Thank you. Thanks so much, John, and thank you for listening. Make sure you go to johnhagel.com to get his book. And you can email me directly, podcast at timothymaurice.com for more or to book me to help you apply neuroscience and behavioral psychology to your leadership and behavioral challenges. Until next time.